at some point we can get to a billion users, we think, in WorldCoin. And, and that would probably make it more, more widely distributed than Bitcoin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto eight years ago, and as a senior editor of Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the August 1st, 2023 episode of Unchained. Asia's buzzing, and everyone's going to Token 2049 Singapore on September 13th to 14th. Balaji Srinivasan, Mike Novogratz, Arthur Hayes, and 200 others will hit the stage, joining over 10,000 attendees. Visit token2049.com for 65% off with the code UNCHAINED. Link in the description. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Arbitrum's leading Layer 2 scaling solutions can provide you with lightning-fast transactions at a fraction of the cost, all while ensuring security rooted on Ethereum. Arbitrum's newest addition, Orbit, enables you to build your own tailor-made Layer 3. Visit arbitrum.io today. Buy, trade, and spend crypto on the Crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Today's guests are Jake Bruckman, founder and CEO of CoinFund, and Chris Perkins, president of CoinFund. Welcome, Chris and Jake. Hi, Laura. Thank you for having us. You recently closed your $158 million seed four round. Given the year we had in 2022 and being in this sort of post-FTX, post-gazillion crypto bankruptcies world, what was it like trying to raise during this period? And how did it compare to previous raises? I definitely think that throughout um, 22 and into 23, the fundraising environment for institutional investors who are looking at crypto managers has been extremely challenging, right? So in the beginning of the year, you had the crash of Luna and BlockFi and 3AC. Um, you had kind of a bear market um, throughout the year with public market prices dropping and eventually toward the end of the year, private market prices catching up and, and dropping as well. And then, of course, in November, you had this catastrophic FTX scenario that we all you know lived through as an industry. And what Chris and I are so proud of on behalf of uh, our team is that throughout that period, we managed to raise about 500 and 50 million bucks. Um, this is really a testament to, first of all, the professionalization that CoinFund has been uh, going through over the last couple of years, a testament to our IR team who has built institutional relationships um, over the last number of years uh, that led up to being able to engage larger institutions this way and, and close them. Uh, and also a little bit of the strategy of what products we're kind of offering and, and how uh, we're offering them. So we're extremely proud to be well capitalized and really bullish on crypto, even though the market right now is somewhat uncertain, somewhat sideways. A lot of the regulation, Laura, as you know very well, um, it is being figured out in real time. But we are more aligned than ever to support and champion our portfolio companies. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, we're going on our ninth year as a crypto native firm. And I think that's a pretty cool accomplishment. And we also wanted to, again, thank our team. If you look at our previous vintage, uh, Seed 3, that was $83 million. And and with this raise, we actually approached our caps. Uh, you, you don't want to have a, a humongous uh, pre-seed seed fund where you're, you're asset gathering. So you know, we, we like to stay precise in our investments. And, and yeah, we, we, we calibrated right to the cap. So very, very proud of the team. And again, people like Jake, the team, it's, this is not our first rodeo. We've been through many, many cycles. And um, it's not a bad time when you're hitting a cyclical bottom um, to, to do what we're doing. And did investors seem more skittish at all because of the bankruptcies and, you know, 
um, Jake, I think you called the FTX thing a scenario. And I was like, well, that's one way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) But obviously, you know, a sort of Madoff level alleged fraud is um, a huge black eye for the industry. So how did that come up in conversations, if at all? Yeah, I I mean, I would say it absolutely had an impact. Um, You know, in the beginning of 22, I think a lot of institutional investors took a step back, first of all, because of Luna in particular, and more broadly because of the uh, kind of broader macro environment that was impacting not just crypto investments, but really investments across the board into venture funds and and technology and, and so forth. And when FTX happened, that was really... That really took the cake. Uh, I think. I think a lot of institutional investors just stopped writing checks at this point. You know, we've definitely had some relationships that were, uh, you know, tracking. But then, upon that event happening, you know, took a took a significant step back. And Laura, FTX was a was a debacle. But even something as simple as this Coinbase lawsuit between them and the SEC this year, which actually I see as is is almost like a bullish thing for the industry. That event alone also uh, has tempered some investment in, you know, at the present time. Wait, I'm sorry. You said that you view the lawsuit by the SEC against Coinbase as bullish for the industry? Well, yeah. I think in the wake of the Ripple decision, what has happened is um, the Coinbase sort of win has become a little bit more probable uh, and hopeful. And I think that the Coinbase lawsuit goes to you know, exactly the core issue that I, I, I'm guessing uh, the, ju- you know, the judicial system will help us decide in the case of crypto assets, which is whether tokens are securities. So let me just chime in, Jake. I think it's pretty clear that the industry is maturing and the companies that are able to navigate the stress that we've experienced, they've built really strong foundations and they're emerging out of this much stronger. You know, I, I do agree with Jake that the Coinbase case is ultimately going to be resulting in a net positive for the industry because we're marching on a road path to clarity no matter what. And people like CoinFund, we've always been supportive of regulation. We've been supportive of principles-based regulation. And what we're seeing now is that, look, massive amount of things happening in Congress right now. There are some major questions. There are some major questions on how this should be regulated. Coinbase makes that case very clear. Um, and either way, whether we go through the courts, whether we go through what we'd prefer, frankly, which is the legislative outcome, we're going to get some clarity. We're hopeful that it's principled and nuanced. But all we want to do is to take this black cloud away from our entrepreneurs and allow them to do what they do best, which is build. And so whether it takes a couple of years and we get that clarity in the court or if our Congress uh, jumps into action. By the way, great episode with uh, um, Congressman Torres yesterday. I thought he he articulated it very thoughtfully. Uh, we literally released that like four hours ago, so I'm so impressed <laughs> that you already listened to that. Well, Laura, Chris is is often modest, but he does a tremendous job on on behalf of Coin Fund, keeping up to date. You know, with the latest in in Washington, with all of these interviews, like the Torres one we just alluded to. Um, and also testifying at the CFTC and sitting in some of their committees. Thanks, Jake. So one thing is, I think both of you kind of said that you felt um, Coinbase, having a decision in Coinbase would be positive. Um, And I feel like, Chris, you might have said, even if it's, you know, even if it goes against Coinbase, simply because it will bring clarity, is that so like, even if it's a decision against Coinbase, you feel like that will still be helpful. I think there's a lot of nuance and, and we're going to go on a really interesting winding road. And frankly, we do have a generational divide amongst many of our policymakers. We still believe that embrace of crypto is and can be and will be bipartisan. It's more generational. And so, you know, we're, we feel good about the direction of travel with Coinbase. We also feel good about the direction of travel with legislation. I think the point is, is that Time is on our side, and we do feel comfortable that we're going to end up in a in a decent place. Ah, you mean time is on our is on your side simply because it's taken so long that finally something has to happen. Well, it's a, it, when you're dealing with a generational divide, the generation that understands the nuance and the opportunity of Web three, you know, is, will eventually be empowered by the laws of nature. And and uh, again, we're pretty confident we're going to be in a good place. Yeah, yeah, that's what Congressman Torres said, basically. 
So as you know, we've been discussing, like, obviously you did this raise and it's kind of a, a historic time in crypto, like this post-22, post-post, yeah, 22, post-FTX is definitely a, a sort of unusual time in crypto. Um, so just when you look at the long arc of crypto development, where would you say um, the industry and the technology are right now in terms of adoption? And then when you think about that, how does that influence how you'll be deploying these funds you've just raised? Yeah, thanks, Laura. Um, I mean, I think <laughs> I remember mining Ethereum in 2015 and, and thinking like, oh, man, well, you know, we're just starting the network now. But in 2016, we're going to have so many apps uh, go and going to market. And now our estimate is more like 2026, right? So there's like a 10-year <laughs> delay, delay there between truly going to market. But I think what we've seen is definitely that there has become a lot more consumer technology uh, that founders are building and more sophisticated founders that have come in, especially over the last two, two and a half years from Web2 to build some of these go-to-markets. And examples of that in our portfolio, and I would say we probably invest in like 10 to 20% of our portfolios is looking at kind of consumer, but mostly that's been gaming related to NFTs. Um, it's been sort of SaaS software, such as kind of analytics platforms um, that surface uh, blockchain data, and probably also a couple of go-to markets that are trying to bring DeFi or NFTs, those kind of core value propositions to the market in a way that like normal people uh, can use them. And of course, onboarding tools as well. So I would say there's definitely been an increase in sort of consumer um, focus in the space. But have we seen this incredible killer app that everybody wants to use? I don't think we've seen that. And I invite us to think about like, I, I tweeted this the other day, like think about chat GPT. This is an application that has some very interesting properties. Number one, you can use it in a second. Number two, you can explain the value proposition uh, in a second. And number three, everybody wants to try it, right? Like it's AI. It's like the new cool thing. And so I would, I would offer that like we don't have any Web3 app that has those three properties at the same time. We've made apps that are easy to onboard onto. And we might have even made apps that people want to try. Uh, but like, you know, we really need kind of all three of those things, you know, to create, to create that kind of growth. So what do I think those apps might be in the future? Well, I think, Laura, honestly, it's probably the things that we always suspected all along. I think we can create, and Brian Armstrong tweeted about this the other day, very, very cheap payments globally, you know, using blockchains. And that should be something that everybody wants to use because moving money these days is, is not uh, exactly cheap. It's expensive uh, relative to the state of our technology. Um, and the other big use case that I've been thinking about, especially this week, as one of our portfolio companies, WorldCoin, uh, has launched officially and globally on Monday, is this idea of just global uh, decentralized identity of which WorldCoin, I think, could be a really interesting foundation. And so there's a lot of initiatives on, on that side uh, of, of the space. And there's a lot of applications uh, like Global UBI that could be incredibly impactful uh, for the world. So I, I think um, both of those areas are kind of what we've always talked about in, in crypto as, uh, as being very disruptive. And it, they're actually starting to come to market now. And I do want to ask you, of course, a ton about WorldCoin, but I do want to um, just quickly ask you also, I mean, the ability to do cheap blockchain payments has been around since, you know, 2009. <laughs> um, so why is it that you think that use case still hasn't taken off? Well, I was going to just jump on what you said, Jake. And, and I think uh, I love the way you talked about foundational infrastructure building. Now, next phase is going to be applications. But and this is related to your question, Laura. Institutional adoption is another major theme that I think we're going to see in the next cycle. And you know, people have been debating it. Oh, the institutions are here. Oh, they're coming. Oh, they're never coming. But what's happening now is during the bear cycle, the institutions have their teams, their, their blockchain. Sometimes it's a DLT team. And during bull markets, they would kind of the light bulb would go on and they jump over to the crypto space because you know that they realized what was happening. I think during the bear, the institutions were building as well. 
And now these teams have stayed together. So we're starting to see more outputs from there. Uh, I sit on the, the CFTC's Global Markets Advisory Committee, and we met uh, a couple of weeks ago. Half the day was focused on tokenization and this whole influx of tokenization that we're going to see. Stable coins, are, in my mind, are the first you know, real use case that, that's a cheap product market fit for payments, right? And you know, what we think is going to happen is that you're going to see additional focus on, on stable coins. And look, we just had a bill that's, that, that came out of committee yesterday. As you get more regulatory clarity, then you'll see greater institutional adoption, which I think will then facilitate you know, more adoption. The tokenized FX markets are fascinating. FX trades $7.5 trillion a day. And to date, we only really have USD stablecoins. I think 99.5% of stablecoins are dollars. And so that's another theme that I think will also allow for payments as, as additional regulation crystallizes. And this tokenization um, theme really takes hold. Yeah. Yeah. Which totally makes sense because, you know, everyday people in non-US dollar economies, um, if they want to transact, even if it is an American sending them money, they will want to receive it in euros or whatever their local currency is. So, all right. So let's chat about WorldCoin. Obviously, this is what everybody's been talking about this week. And I'm sure you're well aware, WorldCoin has faced quite a bit of criticism from the community. Um, before we dive into all that, um, you started to talk a little bit about this, but why don't you fill in more about what it was about WorldCoin or this problem that you saw you know, with proof of personhood um, that made you decide that this was the project you were going to invest in? Absolutely. So, you know, in, I believe it was in 2020 that we were really attracted to WorldCoin's large global vision and really Web3-focused technology and counterintuitively values at the end of the day. Laura, I think WorldCoin solves just an absolutely key problem in decentralization technology. That problem is, of course, civil resistance or in plain language, being able to assign you know, to one address the certification that that address belongs to a single human and just to take us through, a, you know, a few use cases of, of what that implies. Well, first of all, it, it has profound implications for decentralized governance and voting systems. Most voting systems in, in blockchain have been um, token-weighted systems. Um, they've been plutocratic. They've not always been fair. They've been um, kind of compromised by whales at times. And having a proof of humanity... Uh, will guarantee a one-person, one-vote uh, voting system. So you'll enable systems that are like very, very democratic. You can create one of the central ideas of WorldCoin is that if you can create a distribution of a of a digital asset that's extremely wide, you know, you can basically build a cryptocurrency that's bigger and more valuable than Bitcoin because you know we believe at the end of the day, Bitcoin holds its value because of global consensus around the fact that it is a you know, kind of digital gold commodity kind of asset. With WorldCoin, we think we can, um, and we wrote, a, you know, our analyst Austin Barrick wrote about this in our thesis that we published in our blog. You know, at some point we can get to a billion users, we think, in WorldCoin. Um, and and that would probably make it more, more widely distributed than Bitcoin. Using this platform, you could create things like fair token distributions, fair airdrops, um, I think it's a very interesting basis for, you know, reputation systems and identity in general. Identity can't really be one thing. It's got to be uh, segmented across, you know, many different areas. Um, but it's really interesting to have one digital basis in those you know, segmented identities that is a public good, that is a, dis you know, lives on a decentralized uh, network. One kind of pet use case that I love to think about is, Guys, it's actually not that hard to solve the bot problem on Twitter or X.com, as it's called these days. All you got to do is you you have to verify that the users are humans. And, and that's the technology that WorldCoin offers. And finally, there's a reason why Sam Altman is actually kind of the originator of the WorldCoin idea coming from you know his work at OpenAI and in the AI world. And he hasn't said exactly, you know, Specifically, what he what he sees the in intersection there to be, but but I can tell you what I think, which is that 
I believe Sam is thinking about WorldCoin IDs as a way to govern AI in a democratic manner over the long term. And that's an incredibly futuristic and interesting use case. So for all of those reasons, we just thought, and the fact that the team is absolutely first class and fantastic and has built a technological device that is an absolutely new uh, technology in the world. These are all the reasons why we think this is going to be a huge, you know, a huge success. And just to um, draw out what you were saying there, you you were referring to how um, when you talked about using WorldCoin to govern an AI, you were talking about this concept people have been discussing a lot, which is like using a DAO to govern uh, the development of these AIs. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. And that could mean um, governance over the data sets that are being used to train the AIs, like uh, giving people the ability to opt in or opt out with their content or whether it's being used. It could mean trust and safety issues around AI, like what kind of like what are the limitations of a of a public AI that, that want to be observed in a particular situation. Maybe it's in a kindergarten, maybe it's in a in a government building, maybe it's a public one, maybe it's a private one. But all those things need, you know, cut custom governance depending on the context that they're in. Um, and, and the thing that really excites me about uh, kind of decentralized governance in general, Laura, is just that um, it, it, we're going to have a new class of public goods that we're going to be able to democratically govern. And that's and those goods will be provided by blockchains, not by governments. That's the really disruptive thing here. This is a team that's solving a real problem, right? And, and Jake articulated perfectly. It's the civil resistance challenge that we face. And we need it to be solved to, to move this industry forward. And, and as I think about my Web2 life, I think about people that use Clear or use their Apple Face ID. Um, as you start really unpacking and understanding how the team, the culture of the team, uh, their focus on privacy uh, and, and what they're trying to solve, it makes a ton of sense. So I'm sure you know that French and Bavarian data protection regulators are probing WorldCoin for quote, questionable practices. There's a UK regulator that's issued a warning. You know, when you say they have a focus on privacy, like a lot of people really are concerned about the fact that, you know, WorldCoin is getting not only just certain people, but like kind of vulnerable populations, you know, these people in developing countries where, um, you know, they're not from even like a wealthy part of the developing country. They're from a place where a financial incentive could get them to do something that, and I'm not saying that this is WorldCoin, but just like generally a financial incentive could get them to do things that maybe are not in their best interest otherwise. And so I wondered what your response is to these uh, critics who, you know, are questioning why it is that WorldCoin, yeah, has been getting people to give them their biometric data for money. Well, listen, Laura, this is, I'm so glad you asked this. This is obviously like a huge um, issue that a lot of people have brought up and it's a big topic. And so I want to try to address, you know, as much of this as I can. One thing to say is like one of the best articles to read on this is actually Vitalik Buterin's most recent article, which is called, what do I really think about biometric proof of personhood? And in that article, he, he does this incredibly scientific and thoughtful and dispassionate analysis of all the different proof of personhood systems that exist. And if you read the article, the conclusion that he actually comes to is that among the different solutions, biometric-based proof of personhood is actually the most privacy-preserving solutions, assuming that it's architected that way, right? And um, like, to me, while we should be asking those questions and having those concerns, there's also a reality around how WorldCoin is actually implemented, actually architected. And I can tell you that if you, if you look at those facts, it is going to be one of the most privacy-preserving and Web3 values-compatible proof-of-personhood systems that are out there. Now, Vitalik is also eyes wide open that there are centralization risks here. There's, for example, proprietary hardware, and that's currently being manufactured by kind of a, a more centralized organization. Um, but the one of the mitigants to that is that the WorldCoin team have committed, um, you know, essentially to open sourcing everything that they're doing, 
They're going through a process of progressive decentralization of the network of the protocol and eventually of the hardware as well, which is a huge challenge. And we're very eyes wide open that like almost nobody has, has done that before. And there's a variety of issues to solve there. Um, but, you know, on a practical level, when you use this device, your biometric data is not stored and is not sent somewhere. It, you know, does not leave the device. It gets erased. The only thing that leaves the device is a hash, um, you know, the iris code. Now, what's so interesting is that, the, you know, when you actually go to pay, you know, with your world, WorldCoin uh, wallet, and you want to provide a proof of unique personhood, you're not even actually sending the public key of your world ID, the one that's generated from your iris code. You're sending a zero-knowledge proof of the fact that you have a world ID, and it's, you know, in that set of unique humans but you're not even saying like which one. And so, you know, if you start to look at the actual reality of privacy in WorldCoin, you start to realize this is the most Web3 compatible uh, <laughs> proof of personhood that's really out there because the next thing of similar strength is kind of like AML KYC that you do with a proof of authority. And then on kind of the go-to-market to, maybe, yeah, I know that WorldCoin spent a few years kind of going out to developing countries as, as a go-to-market. And some people have raised issues with that. I mean, my position on that is, of course, like we deeply care about the fact that we don't want those types of strategies to be abused. And there's always going to be people attacking the system. So um, WorldPoint is constantly evaluating those strategies, I think. And, you know, on this particular point, Laura, of having... Um, someone predatory kind of take someone's world ID, I think there's actually technological solutions to them. And again, Vitalik writes about this in his post. And the basic solution is, I think in the future, WorldCoin hardware will be very widely available. And if I sell you my world ID, let's say, I will be able to then go to a WorldCoin device, rescan create and create a new world ID, invalidating the first one, right? And so the credibility of being able to sell for profit uh, to third parties, these IDs, I think will will go to zero, right? I don't think people will, will buy them. But okay, I'm, maybe uh, the way this was translated was, uh, maybe I, you know, miscommunicated it, but I think for, for scanning their irises with the orb, they then could receive tokens later or even actually money in their local currency. So I'm not talking about them selling their ID. I'm talking about them like literally just making money from getting their eyeball scanned. Right? Okay. Why is that a problem? Oh, because these are populations that they have a hard time getting money. And so they might just do something for the money without really knowing, you know, how it could affect them or like thinking carefully about, you know, what is this that I'm doing that, you know, I'm giving away my personal biometric information or, or, you know, not, not giving away, I guess, as you're describing, but still they're, they're having their personal, personal biometric data scanned in a way that, you know, they don't know much about WorldCoin. Like what if it gets hacked? What if their biometric data gets out there? Like they're, they're doing something risky that isn't like something that's been battle tested. So I, I think I understand your question, but I, but again, I disagree that kind of the risky with the risky part, perhaps, right? Because again, as, as we've described, the, the device takes incredible precaution to preserve privacy. So I don't think biometric data like could be stolen in mass. And I don't think that that risk is actually that high. If you go back to web three first principles, I think that's one of the beautiful things of what we're trying to enable here. And that's access to financial services for the unbanked. Um, so again, I, I guess I would push back as well, Jake, on saying, you know, paying people uh, for something um, that they voluntarily do. I think it's important that we provide the right disclosures across the board. Um, for, but again, you know, based on the privacy that, that we expect to be achieved here, you know, I don't think it's a terrible thing. I just want to clarify, Laura, is your question... Are you saying that like there's like a third party that goes to a person and says, you know, I'm going to pay you $30, you're going to give me an eye scan, and then subsequently like takes their airdrop, 
which might be worth more than $30? No, no. I'm just saying, like, like, did you read that MIT Technology Review article? I am aware of it, And then it, it yeah. starts with, yeah, like the Indonesian guy, you know, he shows up and there's like a line of people that have been there since like early in the morning. I highly doubt that they like really understood what was going on. I think it was like, oh, we can get money for doing this thing. You know, I, like I used to live in Indonesia too. You know, they're, it's definitely a super different place. They're probably richer in happiness than Americans, but you know, it's not like New York City. So I just feel like when you throw in that kind of incentive, people, I don't know if they're necessarily fully educated about what's going on. I think they're just like, oh, like this company's going to give us money. I think that's a really valid point. And I, and I, and to be honest, I think like most of crypto is still unknown to like most of the world, right? There's a huge education challenge, not just with, you know, world coin systems, but with how blockchains and cryptocurrencies work in general. Um, and, you know, I do think that digital assets are volatile and we're going to, you know, we're going to see how um, some of these airdrops and UBI performs and like other digital assets are likely to be volatile. So we'll have to find ways of mitigating those problems too, right? But if we if we are not able to deploy the infrastructure for this and like run those experiments, make those learnings and create better systems, then I don't know how else we can, you know, we can make the, the, these impactful changes. Yeah, I know. I, I think you get where I'm going though. It's like, okay, experimenting on these people who may not really fully understand that they're the guinea pigs of this experiment. But anyway, so in a moment, we're going to... Uh, go through a few more tough questions around WorldCoin, but first a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Join over 80 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, trade, and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere and get rewarded at every step. Up to 5% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions, and zero annual fees. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Join over 10,000 attendees for this year's biggest crypto event at Token 2049 Singapore on September 13th to 14th. Sandeep from Polygon, Eric Wall, Chris Berniski, and over 200 others will hit the stage, joining the industry's most influential for an unforgettable experience ahead of the Formula One Grand Prix race weekend. Singapore will transform into a crypto hub for a week from September 11th to 17th, with over 300 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Builders and investors at the bleeding edge of innovation will drive an agenda that covers the ever-evolving regulatory landscape, the convergence of crypto and AI, Web3 gaming, NFTs in the metaverse, DeFi, scalability, interoperability, and many more. Visit token2049.com for 65% off regular tickets with the code UNCHAINED. Link in the description. Arbitrum stands at the forefront of innovation as the premier suite of Layer 2 scaling solutions, bringing you lightning-fast transactions at a fraction of the cost, all with security rooted on Ethereum. From DeFi to gaming, Arbitrum 1 plus Nova is home to over 500 projects. And with the recent launch of Orbit, Arbitrum welcomes you to build your very own tailor-made Layer 3, or as the Arbitrum ecosystem calls it, an Orbit chain, directly on the Arbitrum tech stack. Designed with you in mind, Arbitrum empowers you to explore and build without compromise. Propel your project and community forward by visiting Arbitrum.io today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Back to my conversation with Chris and Jake. So the other thing that I'm sure you guys have heard about is uh, the Samcoin aspect of the distribution of uh, the WorldCoin token, which is, uh, as far as I understand, I think I did the math right on this. Um, there's about 5% that was issued. And if you look at kind of the amount issued versus the fully diluted value, it's just really uh, insanely skewed. 
how or why, you know, did the WorldCoin team, and I, I don't know how much you guys were involved, but I wondered how you guys came up with that model and why you felt that that was the right way to launch. Well, yeah, this is, you know, this is really a question best directed to the WorldCoin team, Laura, and, you know, like we weren't directly involved in, in, in those designs. But I mean, as investors that hold the coin, you guys didn't have any input or? I mean, we had general input, but we didn't design design the thing. So I would say there's a few things to say here. This, the, the, the intention of WorldCoin is to become, as I said previously, one of the widest distribu- distributed digital assets, right? So what you're kind of referring to, um, you know, is the issue of a smaller float that I think starts to become resolved as more and more people kind of enter the system. There are some people who have argued that, I think there was a someone who argued that a 20% holdback was, you know, incredibly large. I actually disagree with that. I have over 105, uh, you know, venture portfolio companies. And I know what the averages are in terms of holding back uh, digital assets for investors. And I could tell you that 20% is very, very average. Um, there are definitely companies that have had less. I think um, LivePeer had a 10% or so team holdback. There are companies that had significantly more, like over 50% holdback. I don't think 20% is, you know, it, it is kind of as tough as, as some people are, are saying. Yeah, I, I don't think people are disputing that so much as the, uh, cir- the current circulating supply. And as I said, I think the current circulating supply is, you know, that issue becomes mitigated as the, as the currency becomes more widely distributed. Um, and, and Laura, remember, there's also kind of this periodic payment or UBI aspect to the currency. And so that actually continuously gets mitigated over time, uh, you know, as multiple uh, payments kind of make it out into the market. We're in the first week of the launch. Okay. Okay. But... Yeah, I still um, think it probably (laughs) inflates the price of the coin from the get-go. All right, switching topics. I know, you know, as you said, you guys weren't directly involved in that. Um, So you are um, about to launch uh, what you're calling CESR, the Composite Ether Staking Rate, and you're doing this in conjunction with Coindesk Indices. Explain what that uh, staking rate is, why having a benchmark staking rate is important, and what you think uh, will be built using that. Thank you so much for the question. So CESR, uh, we call it CESR. If you think about finance, global finance, um, interest rates form the backbone. They form the cornerstone of, of global finance, right? And you think about legacy rates, things like LIBOR, uh, now SOFR, or Fed funds, there are trillions and trillions of dollars of financial products that are built on top of these, this, these cornerstone rates. If you look at LIBOR, there were some problems with it, right? It was very much like Web2. It was centrally controlled. It was manipulated. And it was designed you know, rather poorly. But what happened was when we looked at Ethereum, and this goes back to last year, August, as it transitioned from proof of work to proof of stake, uh, we start... like we had this epiphany and we're like, oh my gosh, the risk-free rate for Ethereum was just born. And so how do you think about that? You, you look at the 700, and, you know, 700 plus thousand validators, and if you look at the returns that they receive every single day and you annualize it, that's your risk-free, like we don't like to say risk-free rate, but that's your benchmark rate for Ethereum, right? Um, and there's two components to it. There is uh, the emissions, the inflationary emissions that come out, and then all of those transaction fees. And so we came up with this concept, and then we started watching it, and it was fascinating. Why? Because when FTX happened, people freaked out. We had this issue with counterparty risk. They moved all their many of their assets on chain, and we saw Caesar spike because those transaction fees went up. We saw another instance of it spiking with SVB, with Silicon Valley Bank. Again, counterparty risk concerns. People are you know, like, oh my gosh, I got I to gotta protect my assets. I got to move them on chain. Caesar spiked. But the, the largest observation that we've had was during Pepe, when there was so much trading activity, transaction fees went up and it spiked. Now, like, what do you do with this thing? Why is it so important? 
there are really two different applications and, 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 and ways that you can utilize it. And utility is always something that we think about. First, as a benchmark, think about how many loans in traditional finance reference LIBOR. Over time, we're going to think we expect for a forward curve to be created. And that will allow us to, to calculate future value, present value, um, a discount curve that allows us to inform valuations of, of things denominated in Ethereum, things like NFTs, right? So you have all these different benchmark capabilities. If you're a, a professional staker, and I spoke to many of them, they're excited. Like, wouldn't it be great to have a benchmark upon which you perform? And that, that's kind of cool is all the benchmarking that you can use it for. But what gets us really exciting excited is around... Um, risk transfer, right? And I come from the derivative space. I come from the future space. Um, markets are born when you have hedgers and speculators. Um, and we think, and we're already working with uh, a number of different industry participants on helping them launch a swap product. There are very few fixed rates in crypto. And what we're able to do now, if you're a staker and you swap the floating rate, then I talked about some of the volatility of the rate. If you're able to swap that for a fixed rate, you can run a much more stable business because you know your income. And again, like in traditional finance, that's a $500 trillion industry. The other thing about it is that it's global, right? We don't have different rates for different countries. I think over time, it's going to compete with traditional rates and you're going to see it being able to form like things. We have these things called basis swaps in traditional finance, which is a floating for floating. So it'll also be an onboarding capability. But bottom line is that this we hope, unlocks next generation financial products across Ethereum and beyond. Um, it's a huge unlock if, if we build social consensus and people use it as a benchmark because like anytime you standardize something, it can explode. I mean, look at containerized shipping is something I often talk about. I'm an old naval guy. So super excited. Last thing I'll tell you is that it's very, very interesting and accessible to traditional finance. Um, why? They really struggle with crypto. And we can talk about all the regulatory capital things. Putting crypto on balance sheet is like impossible for them. But they know rates. They love rates. And we think that this is very accessible. They're very interested in Ethereum yield. When you have a synthetic rate like this, again, as that forward curve evolves, super, super interesting. So we're really excited about uh, Coindesk Indices, our partner. Um, and uh, yeah, you're, I hope, hopefully you're going to hear a lot more from this in the future. And just to be clear, when you were talking about the different types of products that could be developed, you were talking about both in TradFi and in DeFi, I imagine? 100%. We expect for listed products uh, to be released uh, on futures exchanges. They're already talking to us. Um, and, and so, yeah, you can use it in, in, it's a convergence product. And ultimately, like, that's part of our core thesis at CoinFund. We don't think we're going to have like crypto and TradFi. Eventually, it's going to come together. And this could be a really nice building block that's very acceptable and, and accessible and to, to both sides. So uh, I think from a DeFi perspective, super interesting. I think from a TradFi perspective, again, very accessible. All right. So now let's also talk about AI and crypto, which is um, another one of the hot topics. And we started to encroach on that earlier. And when we were chatting before this, uh, someone on your team said, AI is everywhere, but we believe AI needs crypto. Crypto doesn't need AI. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that. Well, I think I think I mostly agree with that. I actually I actually do think we can go in, in either direction. But I, I, one of the reasons I think crypto is most applicable to AI is because AI, Laura, has a huge trust problem these days. I think crypto approaches to AI weren't very popular, you know, a year, year and a half ago. In fact. AI people would look at things doing like decentralized AI model training and say, this is crazy. Why would we ever want to do this? We actually need all the compute we can get to get the model as large as we can. If we decentralize this, this is slowing us down. But what has happened since then is I think AI has made a huge splash in the public consciousness. GPT-3 came out, GPT-4 came out, Chad GPT came out, Stability AI launched Stable Diffusion to compete with uh, you know, for generative uh, image AIs with with Dolly two, and people have gotten their hands on AI and are starting to really acquiesce the fact that um, companies that are centralized and have proprietary models are really in a position to suck up a lot of data from users, maybe even more data than than Google has on us at the end of the day. 
And I think this privacy and, and trust problem is starting to enter more into the public consciousness. That's one issue. And then the other issue is look at where all of the innovation in AI uh, is actually happening. There's a broader view, not just in Web3 and crypto, but in the AI space as a whole, that most of the innovation is actually going to happen in open source. And we've seen, um, you know, again, upon stable diffusion coming out, just the explosion of different people experimenting uh, with these things, um, creating new models, training, uh, you know, fi fine tuning uh, models. Um, the, the progress has been absolutely astounding, Laura. Like the time, you know, if you rewind like four, four years, like the time from when you had a proprietary model to an equivalent open source model was probably years. The time between Dolly 2 and Stable Diffusion 1.4 was like six, seven months. And now that that is compressing even, um, you know, even further. And so when I think about Web3 and AI, what I think Web3 can do for AI is open up the pipeline that creates these models. And that pipeline starts with data, with talent, a lot of compute in order to train the models, a lot of compute in order to serve the models as APIs, and then eventually commercialization and productization. Um, now, what we've seen as a, you know, wearing our investor hat is that most of the really foundational Web3 AI intersection is currently happening in this compute area. Compute is the bottleneck for just about everything in AI. If you look at the open AI roadmap, um, you know, almost like every roadmap item is bottlenecked by the availability uh, of, of GPUs. And commercialization is extremely, extremely bottlenecked by the availability of models, which is why we're seeing this insane proliferation of open models, open large language models like GPT for all. Even Facebook recently released an open source model called Llama 2 uh, that's gotten everybody very excited. And so, you know, where we're, we have been investing is in this idea of like decentralized training where people can come together and create models that are, you know, maybe as big as a GPT by crowdfunding them and, and making them open and available. And then also inference for smart contracts. We, we led around in a company called Giza uh, recently, GizaTech.xyz. And what Giza does is it makes the outputs of AI models available to smart contracts. And so that really opens up the design space of what smart contracts can do. So now you can do things like facial recognition or, um, or text recognition in a smart contract and automate a lot of those aspects. I mean, what an exciting time, right? We have these two fundamental technologies that are, I guess, life-changing in their own rights. And when you bring them together, um, amazing things are happening. And, and Jake's been at the forefront of this. I think we published a paper on it last year, a lot, you know, and uh, the amount of talent and the amount of excitement and innovation that we're seeing is like, it's so exciting. And I just can't underscore how exciting it is to be in this space right now at that really crucial intersection. All right. So now let's talk about regulatory issues, which we have touched on here and there in the episode. They're sort of hard to avoid nowadays in crypto. Um, but let's uh, talk about the market structure bill, which again, we briefly touched on, but that's probably the one that Maybe, I, I think, Chris, you could probably tell me better. I think it has um, the most legs at the moment. Where do you think it's going? Why do you think it's important? How do you think it could affect things in crypto if it gets adopted? I had breakfast yesterday with a very senior government official from the UK. And when I run around the world, I have regulators and senior government officials banging their hand on the table saying, please come to my country, build. We're, we're going to differentiate with like very thoughtful, nuanced, principles-based regulation. And that was the exact message out of the UK. What we've been lacking in the US is just that. We haven't been looking forward, right? We haven't been coming up with policies that focus on the technology and, and actually enable it and empower it and keep us in the lead, right? And so, look, this bill, it's not perfect. Um, but something pretty amazing happened yesterday. And we had the first time that we had legislation unique to crypto advancing out of a committee. There's a long way to go, right? But like I said, 
the fact that a number of, of Congress people on both sides of the aisle supported it uh, is a really important data point. And again, as you start unpacking what makes those folks unique, and you start really looking at that generational divide that's happening, it really makes you encouraged for the longer term. And so what will this bill do? It will give us clarity. And you know, I think it feeds really, in, really nicely into some of the work we're doing right now with the CFTC. But at the end of the day, you know, what is a what what is, what should be regulated by the CFTC and what should be regulated by the SEC? Uh, it helps provide some clarity, and it also opens up the concept of of a digital asset or, or a cryptocurrency moving between those agencies as its level of decentralization changes. And so, I would love, love, love to get to a point where we had empirical measures around those measures of decentralization so that it can be obvious. Like, like it shouldn't be a, it, it shouldn't be a surprise. It, like we need to give our entrepreneurs predictable, transparent ways to operate. And that allows us to, 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 to when, when we invest in companies, you know, we don't want them to spend a good portion of that investment on legal counsel that's going to come back and tell them, well, we're not really sure. Um, we wanted to take that those those dollars and invest in people, invest in technology, and invest in their business. And so, long way of saying, I'm hopeful that this bill. And again, like it's an iterative process. XRP gave us some clarity. XRP gave us. I think it's galvanizing Congress to take a little bit more action because some of the results of what I guess we're calling the Torres Doctrine counterintuitive, right? And so now Congress is saying, well, wait a second we need to do something. And, and we're very pleased that they're doing something. Uh, and we're looking forward to these elections to see how you know that further progresses us. And when you say that you don't think the bill is perfect, I know it has to go to the House for full vote. So I'm assuming there is some kind of opportunity to make tweaks. If you could see any revisions be made to it, what would you want to see? Uh, I, I think it's a little bit early on in the process to go into like various specifics of the bill, but what we're really focused on, and by the way, I don't think the House is going to be. Um, I, th I think we'll, we'll have some success at the House, but then you know there's some there's a pretty big hill to climb as you go into the Senate as well, and then ultimately the administration, and and the administration uh, seems to have some very strong thoughts on things like stable coins as well. So right now, I think what we want to do is is work with policymakers just just on that clarity point. You know, how, how can we make sure that our entrepreneurs understand how an individual asset is regulated? What are the rules? And and we'll continue to work with uh, a number of different folks uh, to make sure that our voice is heard. And for the stablecoin bill, I guess there you know was an attempt to get. Patrick, ranking member Patrick McHenry, and sorry, I did it the opposite way. I guess he's the, the chairman, exactly, of the House Financial Services Committee, um, and then the ranking member Maxine Waters to be on the same page about the stablecoin bill. So that didn't happen. Um, what does that mean for the stablecoin bill? Like, you know, will where, how far do you think it'll go at this point? Um, what do you think is good about it? What's not? Give us your take. So they've been working on it for fifteen months. It's been really hard for me to watch um, how slow we've been progressing. Like to me, stable coins are the, the most incredible opportunity for our country to get right. Uh, when you look at the ways, it's, it's an obvious use case and utility. We can deliver efficiency to our companies. We can save costs. You know the the way that you know you can reduce remittances by eighty percent um, according to Uniswap. The fact is, is like there are incredible national security opportunities for the United States to get stable coins right. So when, when you look at all of those things, it's like astounding that we haven't been on the front foot and we haven't really tried to create the conditions so that the US dollar re retains and maybe even increases its reserve status. Like that that's probably what the US government wants, but we have not been on our front foot. I think it was um disappointing that after 15 months that you know we were we weren't able to I guess generate more bipartisan support. But again, when you look at how people voted, it was more along generational lines rather than partisan lines in many cases. And so does this bill have legs? Um, there are some open questions about it. Like, you know, for example, should states have the opportunity to license stable coins? Um, well, gosh, you know, that's probably a much bigger subject around states' rights. I personally believe that we'll probably end up in, in a good place Look, there's going to be a lot more sausage making that happens. The process is not a it's not a clean one. It was designed that way um, by purpose by our founders. 
at the end of the day, we're going to get stablecoin legislation. I can't tell you when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And when it does, hopefully it'll be in a principled place. But I, 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 I really hope that 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 our, our Congress people get their act together. And and frankly, we in the crypto industry should be voicing that. I, I wrote my congressman and asked for him to to take action on it. And so, like, we really need to stay focused and engage. Um, if you look at CoinFund, that, that's been our thesis: is like we want to engage. We want to engage with regulators. We want to engage with policymakers. Um, and, and that's that'll continue to be our approach uh, until we get to a good place. Earlier, you brought up the XRP ruling and you did say, uh, so I forget the phrasing you used, but you essentially said that parts of it maybe were confusing or something like that. And there has been talk of the SEC appealing. And I just wondered, you know, what are your um, what would be your bet on whether or not this would be overturned? And just generally, what's your take on the ruling? Personally, I was um, I was not expecting the ruling. I think most folks were not expecting the ruling in its current form, but it was it was thoughtful, nuanced, and reasoned. And I think it, it is a great starting point. Look, I think the SEC has every right to appeal, um, but as they appeal further, and so does XRP. By the way, um, you know, not everything was was uh, went in, in in its favor, but the stakes get higher when you appeal. And you know, if this ends up at the Supreme Court uh, again. That's not how you want to go about clarity. Uh, but as we sit today, gosh, I think XRP looks a lot like oranges and and we'll continue to um, to move forward accordingly. And, and Coinbase took appropriate action and other exchanges. Um, but gosh, wouldn't it be better if we had like very thoughtful nuanced policies? We put out a paper a while back that talked about how we think about the world. And, and Jake, I know, I know you've got some strong feelings here as well about like, what are the principles that we're trying to solve for? Like some of my thoughts around that are principles-based regulation, right? Like maybe we can take a simple example. Like, you know, we see a lot of smart contracts come out there for fundraising purposes and a lot of people end up getting rugged, right? So what is the what is the most impactful regulation we can have to prevent that? Well, I would argue like, you know, we should use some of the aspects of the technology, you know, in our favor. And one of the uh, one of the aspects of blockchain technology is that smart contracts are incredibly transparent. They're formally verifiable. You can audit them and, and see if um, they have a backdoor. You can create a formal verification system with checks, which checks the same. And so like one simple thing you can do is require that any smart contract that is raising money from uh, you know, market participants passes a basic principle. It doesn't steal your money, right? And you can do that in a, an incredibly technical way. And it seems like very obvious. I often think about in the future that we can trend toward those like very productive principles-based approaches uh, that solve some of these problems. And um, it actually unburdens some of the regulators in a way and makes the enforcement a lot more effective. All right. Well, just last regulatory question, because there are so many directions we could go. Um, if you could just kind of dream up your own little regulatory wish list right now, like what are some specific things you'd really like to see? And I'm especially talking about in the U.S. Gosh, um, starts with all principles, right? And again, we, we put forth a paper on this. Um, what would a good policy have? Well, we would need to have good disclosures um, to make sure that people understand what they're doing. If you look at legacy, um, legacy traditional markets, you can't understand the disclosures. You have to pay a lawyer a lot of money to explain what you're getting into. So how do you put forth like very thoughtful disclosures? I think client asset protections are very, very important. And yes, there's like technology plays a core role in that. And we should recognize that technology and allow it not say, hey, you know, MPC technology, it doesn't fit certain qualified rules. So let's get rid of it. No, how do we use technology to solve for those principles? And that principle is something like client protection, right? Uh, there are a number of other principles that we're, we're, we, we believe in. And that the other thing that I like to talk about is like the technology that we're applying here that solves for those principles. Well, well traditional finance should should do it too, because you know principles are the same and we should use the best technology at our fingertips to be able to use it. So it should go across the board um, and they should be held to, to a higher standard as well. And wait, and I'm sorry, when you say that, like what, what kind of blockchain-based type thing would you apply to TradFi? Well, for example, I used to run a, a fairly sizable FX business. And one of the businesses that I, I ran ran something called Hearst at Risk, and it's called it's Settlement Risk. 
And so like, for example, if I was doing a, a trade uh, on two sides, like if I was receiving dollars, they may come in or if I was paying dollars, they may go out, but I'd have to wait two days for yen to come in. Right. Why is that acceptable from a risk perspective? And how do we leverage blockchain technology to close that risk? Because it's really not acceptable. Um, and so I, I think, again, if you start with the principles, we should use the best technology at our disposal to do it. And that's another reason why regulators should really inc- be encouraging things like like blockchain technology. And this was a question or some variation of it that I posed to Congressman Torres, but DeFi and um, regulating it to protect against the sort of risks we've seen with, for instance, North Korean hackers, you know, going after money in DeFi smart contracts. How do you think that should be regulated in a way that, you know, preserves people's privacy, but also doesn't, you know, enrich these thieves and dictatorships? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Jake will have some views here as well. Um, but you know, we don't believe that you like, how do you regulate the the internet? How do you regulate technology itself? Like we, we should be regulating people and and entities, right? And making sure that they're compliant because it's very hard. And I think this is something that people just struggle to understand is this bifurcation of technology and then, you know, entities and people. We, Wait, but we, are you saying that you would then regulate, you know, for instance, like front ends in DeFi or... Yeah, I, I think to the extent that there was a front end entity that needs to be compliant. But if there's a if there's technology in the back, like how do you how do you regulate technology? It's it's just technology. And so entities and people, in my mind, should be regulated. Look, I I, I was in the Marine Corps. I don't want to give money to terrorists. I've been shot at by them before. Um, it's not fun, trust me. Um, and so the one thing that I, I I love that I'm seeing right now is that technology is coming online that allows us to be much more thoughtful around things like certified credentials. Uh, and I think that's going to take hold. I personally, you know, the government has very little tolerance for issues of AML and KYC. And, and so I, I do think that technology will will solve for many of those challenges. Um, Jake, do you have thoughts? I mean, I'll just say I, I, I think technology is a, is a tool and I think regulation is a tool. And regulation would have been really applicable in the case of something like FTX, right? Which is a human-run organization that should have been held, you know, to a higher standard. Um, I think when you try to apply kind of traditional paper regulation to more advanced technologies like smart contracts and blockchains, you have a bit of an impotence mismatch there, right? Like there's uh, much more effective ways that you can affect kind of the principles-based outcomes that you're looking for using smart contracts. And I don't think like as a, you know, Broadly, like as a, we all collectively as as regulators, right, are yet at a place where we're fully appreciating the innovation that has happened in blockchains and and in smart contracts, and it will take some time, you know, for those kinds of principles based approaches to you know to make it through. Um, Laura, you asked like what would be on my wish list for for this. I, I I think one thing is definitely just a sensible framework where innovative Americans can try some of these technologies and surface the benefits and and make the world into a better place. We do not have that in the United States today. We have an environment of uncertainty, um, unclarity, and it is extremely dangerous, you know, in the, in the explicit straightforward sense of that word um, to be a founder in, in blockchain. And that really should change if the U S wants to, maintain a lead as a as an innovator. One thing I'll add, one thing I'll add Jake is that we are working right now with some regulators and we do believe that the best policy will come from legislation bar none, right elected officials. But I was really pleased that the CFTC um, put forth this GMAC, the Global Markets Advisory Committee. It's one of five committees that they have that advise them. Uh, we were named to help participate. Uh, and like I said, we met a couple of weeks ago and half the day was focused on tokenization. Uh, which was great. Um, but w- what's more exciting is that they did form a digital asset subcommittee. And one thing that they they reached out to me very recently and they said, you know, would you look at NFTs and utility tokens? Um, so like, what's what's the point that I'm trying to make is that they're engaging and I think that's really good. We need to do more of it on the NFTs and utility token side of things. 
I'm super excited because, you know, I don't know all the details of what they're looking for, but if they're looking for ideas on how to thoughtfully regulate it, I know our approach at CoinFund is to reach out to the community, um, find the best experts, subject matter experts in the world, and really, you know, put forth our best foot to engage them. And so I guess that's how we're going to try to move this this, this thing forward. And uh, it's, it's an exciting time with, with that kind of engagement. All right. Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you both. Um, we had a conversation that uh, went over quite the wide range of topics, but it was good. Where can people learn more about each of you and your work? Thanks, Laura. Uh, we just launched our new website at coinfund.io. So please check that out. Uh, and we talk a little bit about our team and kind of how we think about the space. And then, of course, follow us on Twitter. I am JBRUKH on Twitter. And I'm Perkins CR97. Thanks again, Laura. Perfect. It's been a pleasure having you both on Unchained. Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Chris and Jake and CoinFund, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with up from Kevin Fuchs, Matt Pilchard, Zach Seward, Juan Aranovich, Sam Shrebrom, Jenny Hogan, Leandro Camino, Shashank, and Margaret Curia. Thanks for listening. <laughs>